Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach. With me today, I have a very special guest. His name is Paul Glover. He's going to be talking to us about his journey. Uh, I have had recovering attorneys on the show before. I don't believe I've ever had a convicted felon on the show before. So with me today to talk about uh, his learning, his life, his, uh, his journey, and his work as a workforce development coach. Welcome, Paul Glover. Thank you so much, Wayne. It's a pleasure to be here and to be able to speak to you and your audience. And by the way, I'm glad I'm a first. <laughs> I'm glad you're a first too. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, you don't, no one wakes up and says, hey, I'm going to be a trial, a trial lawyer. And certainly no one wakes up and says, hey, I'm going to go down a path that's going to get me into so much trouble that I'm going to be sent away to prison for seven years. Um, or you'll tell me, you'll tell me the exact number. Um, you have a family, you have a, uh, a decent job and um, career path. Um, you had a family and a decent career path. And, well, I'm curious. Let's wind back the clock. I'm going to let you talk and just guide, guide me down, like, where'd you grow up? I know you're based in Chicago now. Did you grow I, up in uh, I, I actually was uh, born in Indiana. When my mother and father divorced, uh, I went with my mother to Florida, returned to Indiana for the last couple of years of high school, and then moved to Chicago. Uh, so uh, I've been in Chicago now for 45 years, so I consider myself to be close to a native. Uh, I know where to go to get a good uh, Italian beef. So that's always a good start. Uh, so no, that uh, that was my uh, my childhood. My And, I, and I, looking back on it, uh, to, to tell you it was extraordinarily disruptive. My mother and father uh, divorced each other twice. Uh, and my mother had was married seven times. My father married four. Uh, so it was a uh, an interesting uh, and and you had to be able to adapt and cope uh, growing up as a child. My sister and I basically took care of each other and did not have a solid family background. That doesn't mean that there weren't uh, ethics or morals, but it certainly was a different perspective about relationships in particular. And uh, it uh, obviously, I, I believe that childhoods and those experiences do shape you to some degree. And, and by the way, that should never be an excuse. I, I refuse to, uh, to say that I've got a reason for my behavior other than me. Uh, the environment that you, you grow up in may, gives you, may give you some pause, but uh, the reality is, is if you want to be a, a person of, of success and someone who is aware, it's your obligation to overcome. Uh, and that's how I looked. I've, by the way, that's how I looked at life. That's how I continue to look at life, especially since uh, I managed to, uh, to lose the career that I love the most, and that was being a trial attorney. And you asked about that journey. Uh, I, uh, I worked in a warehouse, went to DePaul University during the day and, uh, and got an English major. And after that, uh, I decided that being an English major wasn't really going to be a, uh, unless I wanted to teach, wasn't going to really be, wouldn't suit my personality. Uh, and I, I kept thinking about what, what would I really want to do? What, what would I like to do? And I, I realized I wanted to do two things. First, I wanted to be a performer. And second, I am intrigued by the law. So I decided I wanted to become a trial attorney. And that's how I went to law school. And I spent half of my law school skipping classes so I could go watch trials. Uh, I, if you told me I had to be a wills and trust attorney, I'd slip my throat with a rusty spoon. 
I, I was like, that's not my personality and that's not what I want to do practicing law. So, uh, so I did that. I, uh, I graduated law school and I started practicing law and I was very successful at it uh, and just enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed the performance art that's involved in being a trial attorney. Uh, I tell people it's the closest to uh, armed combat that you can get mm. when you're in the courtroom with a real good opponent and you have a judge who makes sure that it doesn't turn into armed combat. Uh, but but you uh, you actually have to be quick on your feet. Uh, you have to be able to engage the jury. You've got to be a critical thinker, but you also have to be uh, be an empathetic listener. And so it uh, it was a good career for me, and it it, it worked well. Until how, how long were you doing that? And oh, what was your specialty as a as a trial attorney? Was it personal injury? Was it no, it was uh, employment labor law, as complicated as you can get. So, uh, so uh, I practiced, started practicing law in 1975, and I went to prison in 1995. So I got my 20 years in. Uh, no one held a retirement party when I went away. Uh, but I also immediately knew I would never practice law again. Being a convicted felon pretty much takes that off the table. It's not that it's impossible, but it's not probable. And uh, I was not a likable guy to begin with. And uh, I knew that, that my career as a lawyer was over. Uh, so I came, out of, uh, I came out of prison after five and a half years and decided that I needed to take what I consider to be a unique skill set and turn it into a profession. And that profession from 2001 on was a coach. So let's, I mean, I... I... I want to introduce the idea of what got you into prison, which was what I know is that you were hanging out with some, um, not the, the, the greatest ilk, right? So some people that, you know, you say yes to something and then you have to say yes to the next thing. And then you find yourself saying yes to the wrong thing. And pretty soon you're in with, a group that is all going down or a group that is pointing to you to be the one going down. So can you just offer us a little bit about that? Because that, um, you know, it's like, yikes, what happened? Well, at first uh, you mentioned, or I, and I, I told you I practice labor and employment law. And because of that, uh, I represented labor unions and I was affiliated or associated with uh, people who are, are you, as you were struggling for the words, I use dubious character. Dubious. And, and a couple of things that, uh, that I think you need to know about my character is that first, I'm an adrenaline junkie. That's why I wanted to practice trial law. You don't practice trial law unless you're an adrenaline junkie. Uh, and the second thing is uh, I needed to belong. And it was a part of my upgrowing, my upbringing where I never felt I belonged. Uh, every time I would uh, go from house, my father's house to my mother's house, there would be a different person there. And I became very much a loner. Uh, it was how I survived. It was how I adapted and coped. Uh, and I was comfortable being with myself, but I still felt the need, need to, uh, to, to have a group that accepted me. And, uh, and this group did. They were very willing to accept me because they saw my blind spots where I didn't. Uh, and one of my biggest blind spots is hubris. Uh, I absolutely believed I was the smartest guy in every room. Mm. And I would show you I was the smartest guy by my behavior, which was reprehensible at best. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I, I had my personal blind spots and faults that other people saw and took advantage of. And, and by the way, once again, I'm not excusing my behavior. I'm explaining it, uh, that this group offered me acceptance. They offered me approval. They offered me appreciation. But you said it earlier, they wanted something in return. And at some point, I, I, I classified myself as a bad guy wannabe. Mm. Uh, I wanted to hang out with the guys, and I never stepped over the line that would have turned me into a legitimate bad guy. But I was close enough to do the 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 acts that got me convicted of white collar crimes, uh, taking bribes, taking kickbacks, uh, 
uh, threatening government witnesses. Uh, I was definitely not a nice guy. Uh, I just was reprehensible, uh, despicable person. In fact, too arrogant, uh, and not uh, and and have no reluctance whatsoever about letting people know uh, how smart I was and uh, how accomplished. And I was very successful at being a trial lawyer. Uh, so I had that. And, and by the way, <laughs> trial lawyers not only are adrenaline junkies, but they have to have huge egos. I I love that you said. You know, I was. I, I was, you know, bragging about myself and I was the smartest one in the room. By the way, I was a very successful lawyer. It's like, wait, where did you just bra- was that bragging or is that like statement of fact? It, it is. It is connected. Unfortunately, it is connected. If you know real successful trial lawyers, uh, I pretty much put, I, I fit the profile. It doesn't mean you have to be that way, but it is the way that that as you associate with your peers, that's, that's the group also, the successful trial lawyers that all gather together. We don't respect any other lawyer, by the way. If you're not a trial lawyer, lawyer you're, just, you're just a clerk. Wow. All <laughs> oh, right. yeah. You're, you're filing that's... documents and you're doing real estate closing, but you're not having fun. You're not drinking. You're not doing, you're just not partying like we party. Uh, and I love that group too, but they definitely did not encourage good behavior. So you're the upper echelon of, of oh, definitely. Okay. Well, especially when you're a federal court trial lawyer. <laughs> we even looked out on the state court trial lawyers. So, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a, uh, not a group. It was a, by the way, everybody drank and everybody got divorced. Wow. Things that was, that was, to, hey. <laughs> absolutely. Awesome. That, that was considered, unfortunately, to be kind of a badge of honor. Uh, so if once you got to two or three divorces, you knew you were successful, you could afford them. So, so oh, dang. Okay. Oh, yeah. It, uh, and by the way, we're going back many years now, obviously. Uh, my, my tenure as a trial attorney ended in 1995. Uh, so that's 20 plus years. Uh, obviously, I, I truly believe, not that I know, but I truly believe the practice of law has changed uh, out of necessity. Uh, just because that the way of doing business like that no longer is acceptable from the client, uh, from the court, uh, either from other attorneys. But at the time, it definitely was the way that you were expected to be. And therefore, if you wanted to fit in, you dressed the part, you acted the part. Were you let's talk about how you dressed. Like, were you always so sharp, like A three piece suit? Uh, spent fifteen hundred bucks a pop. Uh, have the gold chain with the pocket watch. Uh, brand new duds. Believe me, I love going shopping. It was performance then, wasn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Show up in court, and you understand the concept of being an attorney is you are the representative of a client, and he is not. Seldom would I ever want my my client to take the stand. So the jury had to attach to me, and it was my job to establish a relationship with them. And that relationship had to be in place for me to take them through what I call the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. My job was to turn my client into the hero and to explain the journey that got him to court and the adversities that he had overcome and hopefully convince them that he was the good guy in the story. Now, he could even be a recovering scoundrel because the world loves recovering scoundrels. But he had to be, you had to know he was recovering. If he was still a scoundrel, then that was not good. So, yeah, I dressed the part of uh, that, that was required for me to step onto the performance stage of the courtroom and not only impress the jury, but also be able to connect to the jury. Are, so would you classify yourself as a recovering scoundrel? Oh, absolutely. I love that moniker. I really do. It's Paul Glover, the recovering scoundrel. I love that. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's who I am. I can't, I do not deny I was a scoundrel. Believe I accepted early on that continuing to say to people, I didn't do it, <laughs> was just a lie. And at some point, you have to live with those lies. And I decided while I was in prison, I was going to stop. And so um, it must have been a shock. I'm just thinking, like, at some point, 
you see the walls closing in and at some point it's like, hey, um, either surrender or we're coming to get you. Like, what was that? That that, that must have been gut-wrenching. Well, at first, obviously, for anyone to tell you that when you're indicted, you're okay with it. Uh, I can recall vividly, uh, as if it were yesterday, I was playing handball at uh, downtown at the University of Illinois. And I got a call from uh, from a, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, he said, I just want to let you know that you've been indicted on 33 counts of federal crimes. And I did not know that. I was not, I knew that they'd, they'd been investigating me for maybe five years. And I had no idea that they were, they were going to file the indictment. Uh, and so as soon as I got off the phone, I turned around and threw up in a wastebasket because I knew that this was going to not, not go well. But to tell you at the point that I was ready to give up. It was just the opposite. I said, I'm the smartest guy in the room. They'll never convict me. And by the way, I had two trials. Mm. Uh, the first trial was a hung jury. The second trial I lost and received my sentence of, uh, of, of seven years, five and a half for uh, good behavior. Uh, I actually was a much better prisoner than I was a lawyer just when it came to behavior. Uh, I do know what was tolerating the violation of the rules. Uh, so no, it, uh, it was not giving up. And, and and by the way, that's when it turns into hubris. I actually ended up leaving my family financially destitute. I spent all our savings, spent my two sons' college funds, uh, put a second mortgage on our house, and went away for five, seven years. Yeah. Uh, the the opportunity to cut a deal uh, was so far outside my ability to do. And to, and to just give you an example of hubris. Uh, I'm standing in front of the sentencing judge. And now this is the judge that I practice in front of. And the first thing he said is, you know, Mr. Glover, you're one of the few people that have stood in front of me that I wish I could give you more time than the sentencing guidelines permit. Now, that should have been a warning. <laughs> he said, now, I'm going to give you the opportunity to accept responsibility for the crimes you committed, and you can knock... 18 months, 25% off your sentence. All you have to do is say you did it. And I refused. So a year and a half. A year and a half of my life because I was too prideful to admit. And think about this. I've already been found guilty. This is not we're going to go to trial. This is you've already been found guilty and are going to be sentenced. And the answer was no, I won't do that. Uh, I appealed my case all the way to the Supreme Court and got time knocked off. By the time I'd gone through that process, I had spent more time than I got knocked off. <laughs> Crazy. I, I was out, and believe me, Wayne, I wish I could tell you that it made sense. The fact my wife stayed with me when it was clear I was insane uh, is remarkable. I love her dearly, uh, and, and she did. But yeah, that, that's who I was back then. Uh, I no. A jury of finding me guilty didn't mean I was going to say I was guilty. I was not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I was going to ask you about your wife. Your your family stood by you, and and um, at what point did something inside of you shift where you went? You know, this this act isn't working, right? It, it, it was an act, right? I mean, it was. It was it, well, and, and unfortunately, the, I had become the performer. Yeah. So, at what point? And, like, did you? What, when did you realize? You know, I'm in prison. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two years. I can. I can tell you exactly when these things. Okay. Mine. I went through two years of revenge fantasies on everyone that I blamed me in prison. I had a list. You know, there, there's that There's that uh, good list, and then you got the bad list. Well, mm -hmm. a lot of people on the bad list that I hope died in the gutter. Uh, I can tell you that two years in is when the realization about what I had done and the devastation that I'd had on my family kicked in. And, and a couple of things happened. One is 
I was I was in because there was no violence attached to my case, uh, and I was only doing seven years. <laughs> at that point, you're like, God, only seven. Uh, I was at a federal prison camp, and I recognized that everybody believes, oh, well, geez, that's kind of like you know, you didn't go to prison at all. Yeah, well, whatever tales you've heard, that's not the reality. So, so I'm there, and I'm two years into my sentence when I start to see guys who were there when I started doing time, come back. And I looked at some of these guys and I said, you know, the reason they're coming back is because they didn't change. They went back out and they continued to be who they were. They got them convicted the first time. And now they're back doing a second bit. And that was that was a shock to my system. It really was to see people coming back. And I said, that's that cannot be me. I cannot do this again. I'm serving a lot of time. I've lost my profession. Uh, my family is still staying with me, which is remarkable for that, that amount of time in prison. Seldom happens. Uh, but but and then because of that, I said, you know. I need to I need to ask some serious questions of other people about me because my le- my level of self-awareness was non-existent. I did not know who I was. And so I started that. I started honest conversations with people who knew me, with my wife, starting with my wife. And and the concept of offering somebody psychological safety to do that is you have to be willing to hear something you don't want to hear. But by the way, I was in prison. I mean, I, I could look at what my life had gotten me, where it had gotten me to because of my behavior, not because of my profession, but because of my behavior. Mm-hmm. And I said, if I didn't change, I was going to come, I was just going to repeat. And I, I decided not to do that. So I started with my wife, brutal conversations. But our understanding when I was convicted was, if you feel you need to leave me at any time, you need to do it. Rather than just hang out, right? Hang on. And she did. She was a trooper. I saw her once a month for five years. She traveled six hours to down to Southern Illinois to see me for two days and then drive back home. My sons came down every other month. They stood, they stood by me. And that, that type of, I guess, loyalty or commitment, better, better word, commitment finally impacted me about what I had with my family. And the, and the issue was, did I deserve it? And the answer was no, clearly not. So the conversation in my head then went to, what do you have to do to deserve this? And that was the, that, that was the change motivator. Nice. That point on, it was be as open as possible and, and beyond for the people to tell you the truth about you. Accept what they say, thank them for saying it, Consider it and then use it to make the changes necessary so that this is not going to happen again. And it was all about becoming a better person rather than anything else. So I, I did that and, and it was excruciating. I can tell you, I don't take criticism well. I am not, I'm not a team player. I, you know, it just doesn't work well for me. And I forced myself to listen to people tell me what a smuck I was, what a jerk how bad I behaved, how I deserved everything I got and more. I replayed that judge's judge's conversation about giving me more time a hundred times. That was it, Dwayne. I mean, I wish I could tell you, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it took a while. That's amazing. Dr. Wayne Purnell, Dr. P, would like to invite you to dare to declare that your dreams are worthy. Beyond all of the success you have that got you here, you know you're bigger than the life you're currently living. What have you set aside to get to where you are? Don't you want to wake that back up? It really is possible to explore new dreams and dare to desire without giving up your current path of success. Pop over to Dr. Purnell's free masterclass to help you get from your desire to your destination. www.pnell.com 
powerfulpresencemasterclass.com. That's powerfulpresencemasterclass.com. Dr. P's free masterclass is at www.powerfulpresencemasterclass.com. I want to review some of my notes because you've uh, you've dropped some gems along the way, and I think this is huge. And it's also the reason that I wanted you here is that I believe that your story is the metaphor for everyone's life. You know, that that here's the thing. You said it's your obligation to overcome. That was that was huge. You uh you get to choose who you hang out with. You chose hanging out with people you call dubious characters. You choose who to hang out with though, and that's that's a big thing. Recognize that uh, that adrenaline and the need to belong that fuels a lot of people. It's not just you, right? So yes. the whole, right? The whole the whole thing about we as kids we look for ways to be safe and for ways to belong, and we're taught rules. And your rules early on were so mixed up that. Um, it, 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 I mean, you were down before you started. So that's, that is something that you're, you came out as strong as you did. You called yourself a recovering scoundrel and talk about badges of honor of drinking and divorce. And, you know, it's like we look for badges of honor along the way. You have the perspective, the insight to be able to say, I thought I was the smartest in the room that's part of what got me into trouble and you bounced from that at some point to be able to say well what what do i need to be looking at you use the term psychological safety and giving that to others to provide you information that you can then use i wanted to wrap all this together in a bow for our listeners our audience and and talk about how important that is for each of us to provide those around us, you, you in your uh, there was a speech I saw you do, and in your speech you talk about uh, if you were the king, you would have the fool who in your court, the jester would be the one to tell the truth, and how we need to gather people around us and provide psychological safety for them to give us information that then we filter, right? Because there are those around that will not want us to grow or change. And we need to be able to, to discern those that are like, well, that's not realistic. Don't do that. Versus, well, here's some information about you, your character, your behavior, and how it impacts those around you. So there is a difference. And I just want to, I want to bring that all together. What do you have to do to actually deserve the love, the attention, the success uh, that you're going after, right? And that's a big question. So there's that. And I don't know, you know, where to take it from there. What what, well, what I, comes to mind as I say all well, of that? Well, the first thing is that that I believe that you, you embrace life. You embrace the good parts and you embrace the bad parts. If you don't do that, you miss out on 50% of what's going to happen to you. And I know people don't want to hear the bad things are going to happen. They are going to happen. Uh, some some are, uh, you know, just absolutely random. Uh, people who get cancer are, don't, are not responsible for that. But I also look at how much we are responsible for when it comes to ourselves. And I do believe that responsibility and accountability is required to be an adult to yourself, if not in any relationship. You've got to be that way to yourself. You have to be accountable to yourself. And we avoid that. We love to point the finger at someone else. And I tried doing that. I spent two years doing that. Uh, you, we point the finger at somebody else and say, that's the reason why this isn't going well for me. And we need to, we need to look at this and look at ourselves uh, in a mirror and accept who we are. And by the way, blind spots are, are the key to this. We all have them. You mentioned that the commonality of wanting to belong. Of needing to be accepted, of wanting to uh, wanting to be successful, and doing what's necessary to appease the people who uh, you seek approval from, uh, and we have to be aware of that. And our blind spots are 
not blind spots to anybody but us. And, and the reaching out and finding those trusted advisors, you, you, you said what I call them in my, uh, in my presentation is the fools. I surround myself with fabulous fools that are able to tell me when I'm being a jerk because I need to, I wish I could tell you I was cured, but I'm not. Uh, you know, I tell people it's a bad analogy, but it's true. If I were an alcoholic, I'm not going to go sit in a bar to see if I'm tempted. The way I look at my life is I need people to tell me when I'm acting poorly because I, I will go in that direction. Even now, I catch myself acting like a, an idiot, acting like a jerk, and it is uncalled for, and I need to be called out on it when it occurs. Uh, I have people now in my life that have no problem doing that because I've told them how important it is that they do it. And if they are my friend or my loved one, I believe it's their obligation as long as I'm willing to give them the psychological safety to do so. And I do. If I don't like what you're saying, I still gulp and say thank you. Mm, Think about it. It is. I also think about it, and then I'll come back to you and say, listen, I may need some clarification. Uh, but I, if if I don't need that, I'm going to tell you one more time how much I appreciate what you did. That's how we develop the psychological safety to hear the truth about ourselves. We don't hear the truth from ourselves. We just don't. It's not possible. The blind spots absolutely stop us. I, that's that's incredible. The I, I think it's important to point out that reciprocity is not necessarily included in that contract. Right? So if you if you ask someone to to uh, give you information or feedback about yourself, it's not an automatic where it's like, well now I'm gonna tell you about you know, right? Uh, because that's not necessarily psychological safety. Right? Just the opposite. It, yeah. is, it is telling people, don't tell me something I don't want to hear because now I'm going to tell you something you're not going to hear. That's called that's not, it's not psychological safety. I don't want that conversation. Now, if someone comes to me later and says, by the way, uh, I really need you to tell, I'm more than happy to do that, but I don't connect it to the information I've received from that person. It's a separate encounter. Otherwise, it, it does not go well. And I figured that out early on because my immediate response, my knee-jerk response was defensive. Yeah. And, and yeah. what do you do when well, what do you do when you're an aggressive person? You attack. <laughs> and so I was like, this isn't working this way. I can't do that. And by the way, I'll tell people, wow, what you just told me, I need to take a breath really do. I need to assimilate that. So we need to step out of this conversation, but I will step back into it when I've, when I've taken a breath. And people who know me well enough know that, that you don't want to. And by the way, when someone tells you that, I tell, you know, one of the things I've learned is when someone, someone tells you who they are, believe them. Yes. Decide that, that, that they're, they're joking. Don't decide that they're lying. Believe them until they prove you wrong. Uh, so, so when I, when I hear something that's especially difficult for me, painful, in fact, uh, I, I need to step out of that conversation and, and take my time to, to think about it. Then I want to come back into the conversation for clarification. And that's the way it works with me. It's not a one and done. It just can't be. That's why uh, it's an ongoing. It's an ongoing revelation. And by the way, every once in a while, somebody says, "I'd like for you to do the same for me," and and I I am very careful about that because if I'm relying on them, I don't want to destroy the relationship from overreacting or, or like I said, being defensive and responding with retaliation. Uh, but I believe every one of us needs that. We need those people in our lives. We have to find them, encourage them, thank them, appreciate them over and over again because they are giving us a gift. And we need to appreciate the gift. Beautiful. I, I want to use this as kind of a bounce into where you are and where you're headed. 
the, um, you know, what you've been talking about. I do leadership coaching. I work with, with uh, very accomplished individuals and, and uh, work groups and their teams. You are doing leadership development. You are doing uh, workforce development. What you've talked about is when I do this, it's, and I'm certain you call it something similar. I call it working agreements, right? When, when you get people together, it's like, well, what are the, what are the rules about how we're going to engage with, with each other? What are the working agreements, right? So you've, you've created the working agreements with, um, if I say I need a breath, I need a breath. That's real. Like, uh, which is great. Talk a little bit about like all of what you've talked about is such a parallel to an individual's personal development and growth. You know, that the metaphor of we put ourselves in prison by our beliefs, by our actions, by how we allow others to judge us and how uh, we create circumstances by which they can judge us. Um, and then how to turn that around and say, okay, in order to have freedom, I need truth around me. I need a support system around me. This is all amazing metaphor. Like the, your journey, your life journey is, is such a beautiful metaphor for growth and development. You now take that into a corporate setting and you work with leaders. Talk a little bit about that. What is your work with leaders? What is your work in, uh, in the world? And, and um, why is a corporation going to hire a, a convicted felon? Well, a lot of corp- corporations won't uh, just because I'm a convicted felon. Mm. Uh, accept it. Uh, I also accept the fact that uh, since I work primarily off of referrals, uh, 80% of those that refer to me will never work. We will never work together because they are not willing to make the commitment that you just described. Uh, I'm interested in, in working with someone who is not as committed as I am to journey. And so I, I like to think of myself as a, I'm a legacy coach. I want to talk to somebody who wants to build a legacy. And it's a work legacy primarily, uh, not that we can't talk about a personal legacy because often they're intertwined, uh, but it's a uh, but but that's who I want to work with because that to me is is where we can actually go deep because I'm talking to someone who's successful and by the way as you know the most difficult people to coach are successful people uh, they've already done it right otherwise they're not successful but what I'm telling them is you you've been directed to me because you want something that you now don't have. Whatever that is, I don't know. Let me tell you that the framework for our relationship is I'm going to make a commitment to you and you're going to make a commitment to me that we're going to do this together. One of my clients calls me a Sherpa. He says, Paul will help you climb the mountain, but he will not carry your pack. And that's the way I look at it. You have to carry your own luggage here, your own baggage. But I'm going to help you work your way to whatever you tell me the top of the mountain is. And by the way, it has to be it has to be that much for me to be intrigued, right? If all you got is I want to become a better public speaker, there are people who do that way better than me. Go do it. I don't want to do that. I want you to create a legacy that may absolutely include public speaking. But if that's the one single thing, I'm not your guy. Hmm. You're not going to be, you're not going to like how I, how I coach you for one thing. Uh, and then we, then we establish exactly that. We establish the psychological safety to tell each other the truth because I don't believe most leaders hear the truth. That's because that the people that report to them have been taught not to tell them the truth. And that's the leader's issue. But with me, you're going to tell me the truth. And by the way, as a recovering attorney, I will know when you're lying to me. It is a red flag. I've been doing this a long time coaching, which also adds to that. But the skill set of a critical thinker, especially an attorney, is to make sure you ask the right questions to get the right answers. But you also know when someone is deflecting, when someone's decided they'll tell you half the story. I never believe my clients. I believe that they were telling me 50% of the story. I found out the other 50% of the story from the other side. 
And why is that? Well, they wanted me to like them because they somehow believed that was the that was the distinction I was going to make about representing them. Not at all. But that's still how they felt. And when we, when I get a new client, we go through a, a series of assessments so I get to know them better. Personality, we do emotional intelligence. I'm sure that you're doing the same thing because I need to get a better feel for you. I also want to do that uh, 360 degree review because what you're telling me you're like may not be what your people are telling me like you're like and i need to know that once we started to establish these ground rules now we have the basis for putting together the action plan the journey that's going to take you to where you want to go and uh and and, and i am a i unfortunately maybe not unfortunately that's a, that's a bad thing to say i am extraordinarily loyal even when it's to the wrong person uh and i've had to work hard at that my wife is the person who now tells me who my friends can be. Because he goes, you like that guy? That's not a good guy for you. And by the way, once she points it out, it becomes apparent to me that he's not a good guy for me. But until then, my blind spot says, that's a guy I want to be around. So, she, she adjusts your lenses. She absolutely, her perspective is obviously so different, but not, and all she has at interest is my best interest. Yeah. So it makes it so compelling when she says, that's not a good guy. Uh, you need to think and think about that relationship. Uh, so the coaching relationship is all about commitment to me and it's commitment to doing the hard work. And it's interesting to me how many leaders believe change is going to come easy. It, it is hard. Uh, so, Again, I, uh, I, I look at a leader and I go, I'm going to commit. And by the way, I, I commit 50% of my compensation based on the results of our coaching relationship. Mm -hmm. I do that till the end of the year. It's a 12 month contract with me. If you don't want to go that far, I have a taster. We see if we get along with each other en enough, but then we got to commit for 12 months because I'm not sure I can do the things necessary to help you do what you tell me you want to do. Because remember, we're talking about creating legacy. This what is an outcome? What, what does a what does a positive outcome look like when you work? Depen with depends on the individual, Wayne. I don't, I don't, I don't determine the outcome unless I don't believe that it suits legacy. So when you tell me what your legacy wants, you want it to be, we start to say, here's what you need to do to create it and pass it along. Yes. Had a feel for that, we establish the criteria, and I, and we don't go any farther until that conversation is completed. So that's a it's a bespoke program. Uh, it absolutely it is it is, and uh, and then and then we we commit to twelve months of putting the effort and uh, their resources into it. Uh, and uh, like I said, I commit fifty percent of my compensation because I I definitely have this part of me that likes money. And so if I know that you've got money and I want you to give it to me, since I'm not going to steal it anymore, I need to convince you to do it voluntarily. Right? That means I've got to put myself into this game, uh, my skin in the game, right? So I'm going to give you my time and my energy, but I'm also going to tell you I'm so committed to this that half of my earnings are wrapped up in getting the right results for you. Mm. That makes it That makes it much more real to me. Yeah. Uh, people go, well, you shouldn't be. Yeah, but I know me well enough to say, this is going to make me better at this. It's going to hone me. And it does. And then I expect the other person to say, I'm committed to the time and effort necessary. And then we're going to put together the action plans to move you to that legacy that you say you want. By the way, every once in a while, about halfway through, I have somebody who says, this is too hard. I'm like, well, you know, the problem with that is I've now put six months into this and you decided you're bailing. I collect the whole 12. Quitters, quitters need to pay. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're going to commit and you know that it's this upfront about what we're going to do, yeah. a month of doing it so you get the feel for how it's going to happen. No, then I, then I expect you to commit. This is great. This is great. The, uh, you know, people fail for three reasons. Um, typically the first, you know, it's, it's based on pain. 
And the first is you have to give something up if you're going to change, right? You can't order pizza and sit on the, sit on your couch watching, you know, doing Netflix binging if you say you want to uh, improve your physical health, right? So, so there's, there's that. You have to give something up in order to do something new. Uh, the journey itself is hard. There is what's called process pain and, and, uh, in, inoculating people to that ahead of time is, is good, but most people don't know it. it's why, it's why most, uh, New Year's resolutions fail within six weeks. The process is hard. It is hard. Um, and then the last one is, is, uh, what if I do all this work and it's not what I want? And like, that's the only one that as, as coaches, we don't have control over because no. that's imaginary, right? You could yes. put time and effort into worrying about what if it's not right, or you could put time and effort into creating a vision of the thing that is right and working towards it. So you're doing all this work. The, the word that continues to come up uh, over and over and over and over out of your mouth is the word commitment. And um, I just think that's really powerful. And I wanted to point it out that that's like, that is huge. And I think that that is so important that uh, from a personal perspective, like if you really want something, you must commit to it. And that's like, how else do you build legacy, right? It's Absolutely. like, yeah. So I, yeah, I just, I, I wanted to underscore that too. Well, and I and let, let me tell you that I have no problem with somebody three months into the program saying, you know, now that we're doing this, I'm looking at what I want to achieve differently. Because you're absolutely correct. The journey often sculpts a different outcome if you allow it to. And the journey is all about, I'm okay with that. If you decided that you want this instead of that, then we'll do that. But but again, I think that that you're you're spot on. I am uh, I am all about the commitment. I don't know how to operate otherwise, yeah. uh, and it works if you're committed, and that's that's the deal, right? And if you're not, I'm okay with that too. Except don't waste your time, don't waste your money, uh, because I don't want you wasting mine. And that's the way I feel like it. it's a partnership. It has to be a partnership, uh, a relationship that that is truly meaningful that allows us both. To, by the way. I get something out of these relationships. Uh, when someone's successful, someone once asked me, he said, well, what's your legacy? My legacy is the success of every person that I have helped through the journey. Mm -hmm. It's my legacy, and I, I take it seriously. I want everyone that, that enters into that journey with me, or we enter into together, to succeed. And I want to be able to look at that person and say, look how much better you are, how much better your organization is. And when you are ready to hand it off, you will be so proud of what you've accomplished and give it to someone else as their gift. This is really great. Let's uh, take a moment to talk about... Uh, the books you've got going on. And if you, I'm going to ask you like three questions all wrapped together and you can choose how to, how to answer it. First, is there something you wish I had asked you or is there something we haven't covered that you were hoping I would cover? Second, can you talk about your books and the work you're doing? And third, if people want to reach out and find you, how do they do that? Well, first question is no. Uh, obviously, you've I've tripped too many triggers. You can tell by the way I've responded. You've given me every ample opportunity to say exactly what was on my mind, and I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I told you that 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 it, I'm an open book now. Truly, uh, that's the only way that I live, and I appreciate the fact you had no problem reading the book. So I appreciate that. Uh, I actually do have a book. Uh, it's called Workquake. I'll stick it up here. Workquake. Uh, Workquake, yes. Hold it up again. Yeah. Hold it up again. Sure. Yeah. Workquake. Uh, by the way, I just I will point out to your audience that uh, first I wrote this book twelve years ago and I hated it. Hated the book. And when the uh, the publisher said, "Well, I don't understand why you just don't like this book," I said, "Because nobody is ready for what I say they should do." Workquake is about changing the way work is done. He said, well, maybe. And I said, no, no, maybe about it. I know they're not, but it doesn't matter. I, I was compelled. I believe anybody who writes a book does it out of compulsion. It didn't 
It is not an easy process. Anyone who's done it knows. I see you've got yours back there. Now selling three of them. I give you credit. I have struggled for writing one. And, uh, and so, uh, what, the reason that I say this is that now my book is spot on. I was prescient. <laughs> are happening with a great resignation and uh, the things that, that surround that and the future of work. That was what my book was projecting 10 years ago. <laughs> so uh, also the, the, the oddest, one of the oddest things that happened is someone else just published a book entitled Work Quick. Oh. Now I've trademarked Work Quick <laughs> and, I, and I have struggled with myself about should I call them out on it? And the answer is no. Huh. If they've done a book, listen, if they've done a book and someone reads that book because of the title and it's and they get something from it, who should I be the one to say, don't do that? I just accepted it that uh, that, that it's OK. Uh, by the way, take me back to my lawyers. I would have sued. <laughs> no, not anymore. It was like, in fact, I'm good. I'm OK with it. Uh, so it's, it's important to me that uh, that people who are interested in taking the journey that I just described. And, and it's a difficult journey. I'm a difficult person, but I, I am a, I believe because I continue to have clients who pay me, I'm a pretty good coach. Uh, anyone who wants to have that conversation, uh, is, uh, is able to reach me at paulglovercoaching.com and also on LinkedIn at Paul Glover Coaching. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in the conversation. Good. And those, uh, those two contacts will be in the show notes that accompany this podcast, paulglovercoaching.com and on LinkedIn, Paul Glover Coaching. Well, anything else? Good Lord, no. <laughs> well done. All right. Well, Paul, thank you for joining me. Appreciate you being well, here. I, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. Obviously, I'm passionate about what I have to say. I hope that people take something of value from this and are able to apply it to their situation. I think they should be able to. And if that happens, then I'm, I'm very happy to have spent the time with you. I'm happy to have spent the time together. I think that there are multiple uh, life lessons along the way. And... Um, I look forward to introducing the audience to you. So this is great. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. This is One Sharp Sword Cutting Through to What Matters Most. I am Dr. Wayne Purnell, Dr. P. My guest today was and is Paul Glover. Uh, he is reachable at paulglovercoaching.com. You can find me where you're finding me. Look around, uh, Wayne Purnell, Exponential success coach. Thanks for being here. This is One Sharp Sword. We'll see you here next time. Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. 